Are you willing to say, Lord, if you were to ask me, if, if I could be sure that I had Christ, if I could be sure that I belong to Him, I would give up everything else I ever have had or hope to have to get Him. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom continues his current series with part four of God's Great Secret. So far throughout this series, you've learned that the great mystery of God has been revealed through the person and work of Jesus Christ. This mystery includes the incredible spiritual blessings and riches for all who are found in Christ. And today, Tom will continue to look at the richness of this marvelous mystery. How the church, a group of undeserving redeemed believers through the power of the gospel, is the stage and focal point upon which God's great and wonderful plan and wisdom is put on full display. Let's join Tom Pennington now to hear more from God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. With man, it's impossible to really see the, the treasure that is Christ, but with God, all things are possible. He can open our eyes to see the treasure. The second point is that once you, your eyes are open to see the treasure, whether it's the treasure hidden in the field or whether it's the one pearl of huge price, you are willing to give up everything else, to sell everything else to get the treasure. That's the point. When you see Christ, when you really see Him with your soul, when you understand His true value, you're willing to give up everything else to get Christ. Paul understood this. In fact, it was his own biography. Turn with me to, to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 in verses 4 through 6, Paul recounts what all of his assets used to be. He used to have a whole list of spiritual assets. Verse 7, But whatever things were my assets, whatever things I used to think were my assets were gained to me, those things I have counted as liabilities, as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I consider everything to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom, don't miss this, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Listen, Christ may ask you to suffer the loss of all things. For many of us, that wasn't true. It was for Paul. He lost everything. Or he may ask you to be willing to give up everything as he was really confronting that rich young ruler with in Mark 10. But notice what Paul says, verse 8, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I consider everything I lost, all of the rest of that stuff that used to be valuable to me, as, and the Greek uses a very strong word here, as dung, so that I may gain Christ. It is excrement to me. Everything I used to value is worthless. All I want is Christ. Paul understood those parables, didn't he? He understood that once you find the treasure, nothing else matters. Nothing else is important. Listen, is that how you think of Christ? Do you think of Him as a treasure 
on whom it is impossible to assign a worth, that his value is without fathom, without measure? And are you willing to give up everything else to get Christ? Are you willing to say, Lord, if you were to ask me, if, if I could be sure that I had Christ, if I could be sure that I belong to him, I would give up everything else I ever have had or hope to have to get him. That's what it means to follow Christ. That's what it means to see the treasure and to want it so badly that you're willing to give up everything else to have it. Paul said that his mission was to preach the good news about the riches that are Christ that can't be fathomed to the Gentiles. To us, many of us. Most of us here are Gentiles. And listen, folks, today we still benefit from Paul's ministry on our behalf. It was his voice at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 that helped ensure that you and I didn't have to become Jewish in order to be a part of the church. It was Paul's preaching on his three great missionary journeys that made the early church a force among the Gentiles. It was Paul's letters to the Gentile churches that formed the bulk of the New Testament. And isn't it true that we tend to turn most to those books that Paul wrote to the Gentile believers when we turn to the Scriptures? Although you and I don't live in the first century, we still owe our faith in large part to this special man whom Christ specially prepared and selected to be his apostle to us. If you've never thanked God for Paul, or you haven't in a long time, let this text drive you to gratitude, drive you to your knees in gratitude to God for this special man. But to preach to the Gentiles the good news was only half of Paul's mission. Notice verse 9 adds the other half. To bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. Notice that this half of Paul's mission is broader. He doesn't say to the Gentiles here. In fact, several early Greek manuscripts add the words to all men, to bring to light to all men. Whether we add the words or not, the point, I think, is a valid point. There was a part of Paul's ministry that was to both Jews and Gentiles. What was it? Look at verse 9 again. It was to bring to light, to illuminate, to publicly disclose the administration or the outworking of God's great secret. The secret that from the time God created had been known only to God, but that he had in the first century chosen to reveal. Now what mystery is Paul talking about here? Remember, Paul uses the word mystery of the entire mystery, which is Christ, and of parts of the mystery that is Christ. And here, he's probably meaning the second. He's referring back to verse 6. The truth, that mystery, that as in Christ, Jewish believers and Gentile believers are formed together into one new organism, the church. Paul says, my mission is not only to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, but to tell both Jews and Gentiles that God had, as part of his secret in Christ, this secret, that the Jews and Gentiles would be one together in a new community, in a new organism called the church. Paul says, that's my mission. How did God broadcast his secret to the world? How did he get the word out? 
when God chose to communicate His secret, He did so through the ministry, both the teaching ministry and the writing ministry, of one carefully chosen man, the Apostle Paul. Now, that brings us to the fifth question about God's great secret, and really, a bedrock issue. Why? Why did God reveal His secret? Why did God reveal His secret? Why should it matter? Obviously, God held the secret, God revealed the secret, and He thought it was important for us to know, as well as the believers of the first century. He had Paul write it down for us. Why? Well, look at verses 10 and 11. So that. Here's God's purpose in revealing His secret through Paul and His ministry. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I know that sentence is a little hard to follow. But folks, that is one of the most comprehensive statements in all the Bible. It is sweeping in its scope and ramifications. The key that will unlock our understanding of it is found in verse 11 in the words, the eternal purpose. Literally translated, that expression in Greek is this, the plan of the ages. The plan of the ages. You know, you often hear people talking about the world being out of control, usually as they talk about politics. While it is true that the world is out of our control, it's not out of God's control. He has a plan, and it's a plan that He conceived in eternity past among the councils of the Trinity. It's a plan for the ages. And everything that's happening today and ever will happen is according to God's great plan of the ages. One commentator writes, behind all the events of this world's history, there is an eternal purpose being worked out. God's is no ad hoc plan but one conceived from eternity and eternal in its scope. And folks, at the heart of God's plan of the ages is Jesus Christ. Look at verse 11. The eternal purpose or the plan of the ages which He carried out in Jesus Christ our Lord. At the epicenter of God's plan of the ages is the exaltation of His Son, Jesus Christ. Look back at Ephesians chapter 1. Paul made this point there, you remember? Verse 9, here's the secret of God's will. Verse 10, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. You see it in the other prison epistles, the other letters Paul wrote around the same time from the same prison cell. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. It says, God has highly exalted Christ, bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those in heaven, on earth, under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Look at Colossians chapter 1. Notice how he puts it here in the parallel passage. In verse 18, he says, He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that for this purpose that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. Jesus Christ and His exaltation is the epicenter of God's plan of the ages. And if you go back to Ephesians chapter 3, not only was Jesus the center of the plan, but notice in verse 10 that the church was part of this plan of the ages because He says, through the church, and then He says in verse 11, in accordance with 
the plan of the ages. So what he's doing in the church is part of his plan of the ages. To say it another way, the church was always part of God's eternal plan. By the way, let me just stop here for a moment and make a theological point. As an aside, let me say that I am and we are as a church dispensational. You hear that word. We're dispensational in two senses. I I refer to myself, as my mentor often does, as a leaky dispensationalist. I don't embrace everything that dispensationalism does, but we are dispensational in two senses. Number one, there is a distinction, we believe, between Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church. They're not the same entity. It wasn't the church in the Old Testament. It's the church in the New Testament. It was Israel in the Old. That's number one. Second reason we would call ourselves dispensational is that we believe there are literal promises yet to be fulfilled to Jewish people, to ethnic Israel. That's it. That's where our dispensationalism stops. But listen, we absolutely reject what some dispensationalists teach. It's called classic dispensationalism. Schofield and those who came after him embraced, including some of our friends here at Dallas Theological Seminary, And that is, we reject this, that the church is a parenthesis, you may have heard this taught, that the church is a kind of parenthesis, an accident in God's plan. That if when Christ was here and entered the city of Jerusalem, that if Israel had accepted him as their king, the whistle would have blown, everything would have stopped, and God would have set up the kingdom of Jesus on earth at that time. I disagree with that for a number of reasons, but one of them is right here. Paul here makes it crystal clear that the church has always been part of God's plan of the ages. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a parenthesis. This was part of God's plan. So, why did God choose then in the first century to make this secret known, this secret about the church? Well, look at verse 10. According to verse 10, it has something to do with the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. These are angelic beings that we met back in chapter 1, verse 21. Rulers speaks of those who have primacy or first place in rank. These are angelic rulers. Authorities describe someone with the freedom to act, the freedom to make decisions. These are angelic beings in positions of authority with the right to act and make decisions. Almost certainly here, Paul is speaking of holy angels, and he may be including the demonic powers as well. We can't be certain. So what is he saying? He's saying that God has revealed his secret so that, or for this purpose, that powerful, intelligent, angelic beings will see. Now that surprises me. I don't know if it surprises you or not. That isn't the answer I expected as to why God made his secret known. Let's look a little further here. He's essentially saying this, God is engaged in a grand demonstration, a grand exhibition on a cosmic, eternal, universal scale. Francis Foltz writes, the purpose of God for his church, as Paul came to understand it, reaches beyond itself, beyond the salvation, the enlightenment, and recreation of individuals beyond its unity and fellowship, beyond even its witness to the world. The church is to be the exhibition to the whole creation of the wisdom and love and grace of God in Christ. William Hendrickson writes, God's purpose in saving His people reaches beyond man. His glory is His chief aim. 
God is putting himself on display. And what is God putting on display? Look at verse 10. So that, for this purpose, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. The manifold wisdom of God. The word manifold is not a word we use very often. It was used in ancient Greek of the beauty of an embroidered pattern of cloth that was woven of a lot of different colors. In fact, in the Septuagint, this word is used of Joseph's coat of many colors. It was also used to describe the variety of hues and colors in a garland of flowers. Think of a lei in our time and the variety of hues and colors that make up those flowers. We could say it like this. God is making the multicolored splendor of his wisdom known. Here's the key question. How? How is God putting his multicolored wisdom on display? Look at verse 10. It says, through the church. Folks, this is incredible. Look around you. The church, the church universal, as well as local churches like Countryside Bible Church, are the theater in which the eternal God is putting his wisdom on display, not just for you to see, not just for other humans to see, but for powerful, majestic, awe-inspiring, angelic beings. J. Adams writes, God's grand demonstration has been taking place and still continues to take place before hundreds of thousands of intelligent beings throughout the universe. And folks, nowhere is God's wisdom more clearly seen than in the redeemed community called the church. I love the way John Stott puts it. He says, the church is the graduate school for angels. Now, If you look at what we've just gone through together and you don't immediately make any practical connection or you don't understand the importance of it, let me see if I can make the connection for you. Three great ramifications, or as John Stott, from whom I'm adapting these points, calls them three grand facts that flow out of what we've just learned together. Fact number one, the church is central to the gospel. The church is central to the gospel. When Paul described his ministry, he not only preached the gospel of Christ, the unfathomable riches that are Christ, he also was about bringing to light this secret to the Gentiles. God thought it was that important for us to understand that this was his plan of the ages. The church is central to the gospel. You know what that does? It underscores the importance of the church. If God thought all this was so important, And if God is putting his wisdom on display in the church, then that makes the church important. Is the church that important to you? Are these people sitting around you, are they that important to you? Is that where you spend your time and your off hours and your energies is in the church? I'm not talking about the buildings, I'm talking about the people. Church is central in God's plan, even of the gospel. Number two, and we don't think like this, but the church is the focal point of world history. The church is the focal point of world history. You see, from an entirely human perspective, history is the story of great men and women, world leaders, the builders of empires. That's how we study history. Open any textbook of history and that's what you'll find. But do you understand this? Paul is saying that if God were writing a history book, it would not focus on the men and women that we find in our history textbooks. 
In fact, according to God, they're almost incidental to the story. They're two-bit characters. If God were to write a history of the world, and to some extent, while that wasn't his primary intention, he has for us in the Scriptures, God would write not about the great world leaders. He would write about Moses and Abraham, David and Solomon, the great prophets. He would tell of John the Baptist, of Peter, James, and John, of Paul and Barnabas, of Timothy and Titus, and not just the famous Christians either. Read the last chapter of Romans. There are people listed in the last chapter of Romans who nobody that mattered in Rome knew. But they mattered to God. They were essential to the story, to the plot, to what was going on in Rome. That's the story God would write. Listen to how John Stott puts it. Secular history concentrates its attentions on kings, queens, and presidents, on politicians and generals, in fact, on VIPs. The Bible concentrates rather on a group it calls the saints, often little people, insignificant people, unimportant people, who are, however, at the same time God's people, and for that reason are both unknown to the world and yet well-known to God. Stott goes on, secular history concentrates on wars, battles, peace treaties, followed by yet more wars, battles, peace treaties. The Bible concentrates rather on the war between good and evil, on the decisive victory won by Jesus Christ over the powers of darkness, on the peace treaty ratified by His blood, and on the sovereign proclamation of an amnesty for all rebels who will repent and believe. Secular history concentrates on the changing map of the world as one nation defeats another and annexes its territory, and on the rise and fall of empires. The Bible concentrates, rather, on a multinational community called the church, which has no territorial frontiers, which claims nothing less than the whole world for Christ, and whose empire will never come to an end. That's God's view of history. Do you understand that to God and to the thousands of angelic beings who hover over this world, the people of God are the heroes of the story, of history? In the first century, they watched excitedly over the shoulders of Paul and Peter, Priscilla and Aquila, along with thousands of other nameless Christians whose names we will never know until we get to heaven. But now, folks, the stage is ours. You and I, as members of the church, we are the focus of their attention. They're straining to watch as you serve in the body of Christ. Let me just ask you, do they see in your life and in your service the manifold wisdom of God played out through His church? Christian, your life is not about you. Not about your personal comfort. It's not about your personal pleasure. It's not about just surviving. Your life is not just about working and eating and sleeping and watching television. You are part of God's plan of the ages. You are putting the multicolored wisdom of God on display, not just for the people on this planet, but for the powerful, intelligent beings of the angelic and demonic order. You are, in a word, bringing glory to God. This is where history is really taking place, from God's plan of the ages. 
And when He retells history in eternity, it will not be of the great rulers and the great empires. They are incidental to the story. The real story is the people of God in the church of God displaying the glory of God for all of the intelligent world to see. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part four of God's Great Secret. Tom will continue with part five on our next program. Join us then, won't you? Well, we'd like you to know that Tom has a new book out titled The God Who Hears, a book of pastoral prayers. It features 31 scripture readings and accompanying pastoral prayers. Tom's book is available for purchase right now online at thewordunleashed.org. As always, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.